Hello, everyone. In this episode of Hewlett Packard's Live podcast from Research to Reality, I have a great honor and pleasure to host Lynn Neese, uh, HP Fellow, who is Chief Technologist uh, at, uh, for IoT at Point Next, which is our advisory and professional services. Welcome, Lynn. Thank you, Dayan. Great to see you again. It's my pleasure. So, Lynn, you are um, HP Fellow. What does it mean? How did you become HP Fellow? So, uh, if you're around long enough, no. <laughs> actually, uh, I've been uh, very fortunate in the company in that I've been CTO for a few businesses. Mm-hmm. So, for a period of time prior to our merger with Compaq, I was actually the CTO for our Unix server business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then for a period of time, I was CTO for our ProCurve networking business about mm-hmm. the time we acquired 3Com before the Aruba acquisition. And I've spent time in the field. So one of the, one of the real benefits of being in a large company and, and having a long tenure is that you can do a lot of new and interesting things, which is quite different from, you know, I'm a specialist in this area and I move from company to company doing what I do in a very narrow sense. And so uh, because of that great fortune, to be honest with you, it's given me a lot of insight and wisdom that I've been able to use to move up the ranks in the technical career path. And fellow is awarded for contribution to HP business, the technical contributions. Yes, yes, absolutely. And what did you do before uh, all these CTO positions and becoming fellow? So my actual, you know, my, my actual training is a software engineer, mm-hmm. and I was actually one of the uh, first firmware engineers back in the days mm-hmm. of, gosh, I'm going to date myself here, PA Risk. So I was uh, one of the authors of, original authors of some of the, the old processor-dependent code mm-hmm. in the PA Risk days. And, uh, and I, I rose through the ranks in what was a hardware organization as a software person. Mm. So I wonder if that was an unfair advantage. Well, it, it, it's not easy. I remember I was the same, you know, surrounded by hardware guys who yeah. always tell you what to do. But l- let's move to today. Uh, you, what does it mean, chief technologies for IoT? And what is IoT, by yeah, the way? Yeah, so Internet of Things, right? It's the, it's the basically digitization of the physical world. And so when, when we get involved with projects with customers, we're, we're usually helping them solve problems related to their physical operations. And IoT is all about sensorizing an environment, sensorizing assets or people, or basically apparatus of mm-hmm. operations in order to use software to infer things about the operation that in the past people would use their own minds for. And, and you work in Point Next, which stands for Advisory and Professional Services. Correct. So what do all these yeah. words mean? Yeah. So, so Point Next services are separated into two parts. There's the operational services that we all know very well. And mm-hmm. that's really the current branded Point Next, which is support contracts with customers, which we have revolutionized over the years, right? Mm-hmm. Then there are services that we provide uh, for running people's equipment and managing it. We have managed services. Then, of course, many of you are familiar, many folks are familiar with the Green Lake services, which mm-hmm. are the rendering our infrastructure as a service. I'm part of the advisory professional services arm where we get involved in projects to help customers 
do do things one time, right? So they they need an architecture associated with some distributed replicated site greenlit deployment. Mm-hmm. We provide architectural assistance. We provide uh, deployment services. We will program manage these projects, and then I tend to get involved with strategic consulting with customers as well. Mm-hmm. What does strategic mean? What what is strategy? So. Many of our customers uh, believe they need to digitize their operations or they need to transform their business somehow. You know, and I've had customers who, you know, we all know about connected cars. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, we get involved in helping them understand the consequences or the, the ramifications and issues around technology to support something like a connected product, like a connected car. But uh, we've had customers who were thinking things like smart countertops. Uh, compressed air as a service, right? Uh, you'd be amazed at some of the ideas that we've dealt with. We've, I've got uh, customers who are who are, have deep chemistry knowledge in IP, and who want to provide things like uh, fleet services, mm-hmm. help people improve their fuel economy, or predict issues and failures in their in their trucks. So what they typically don't know because they, they understand their business quite well, but their business is not IT. Our, our strategic consulting helps them understand what the technology ramifications are. Yeah, this may be a great idea. Maybe you could connect every countertop, you know, in, in your restaurant customers or whatever, but guess what? It's gonna cost you something, right? You have to collect that data, you have to store it, you have to build a pipeline, you, you have to support it in the field. It's software, it's hardware. It's IT as a service, and so we help them with those strategies. In the beginning, when you were defining IoT, you mentioned physical things. Mm-hmm. So there must be some physical products that are also deployed around which you do advisory services, etc. What are these IoT products? Exactly. So, well, so from the customer's perspective, they're going to deploy things like sensors. Mm-hmm. Like the whole world re- revolves around what type of physical phenomenon are they trying to, to digitize? And in, in a very common case, two very common cases are, think of vibration sensors that are being used to infer the state of an asset. And there's, there's an incredible number of rotating machines in mm-hmm. the world that are used for any number of things. Mm-hmm. And the vibration measurements off those machines can tell you a lot about it. Another very common sensor, obviously, is a video camera. And now, with artificial intelligence, the machine learning, people can infer an incredible variety of phenomenon using video and AI, machine vision, we call it. From our perspective, where we come in as a product company, is we provide networking products that these different sensors connect to, and then we also provide computation products that are particularly designed for deployment on-premise in these production environments to process those those digital streams and provide inferences of value. So I, I really like talking to you because you know we work in labs, we think about what the problems are, but you know what the problems are that customers have. So what are some of these hard technical problems that they have? So I'll give you some examples of projects we've worked on. So uh, we have a, a customer who provides robotics solutions. Mm-hmm. We're talking about you know mundane stuff. It's not the not the cool robots that mm-hmm. run and jump, but it's uh, welding robots for mm-hmm. automotive customers. And 
what what happens when uh, let's say there's wear and tear on a robotic arm mm -hmm. is that before you you know it's failed before it has failed it's actually started providing defective welds mm -hmm. and so uh, one of the more challenging use cases is using machine learning to understand from multiple sensors it's a sensor fusion mm -hmm. vibration electric current going into the motors that are driving that robotic arm what are the signatures that tell you that the weld is about to start missing by that millimeter tolerance mm -hmm. you've got and that you need to shut down that welding robot before you create scrap and and before the production line now uh, is wasting its its energy mm -hmm. and, and its efficiency very interesting very interesting and what are those non-problems you mentioned some where customers wanted to connect countertops and other things but are there any technical non-problems that there so predictive maintenance is a great example mm -hmm. and a lot of the inference so over the years um, if you run a nuclear power plant for example there have been rules-based systems created through, through the hard work on the shoulders of, of great technical people figuring out how rotating machines work going through and looking at vibrations and they can tell you precisely what's wrong with, mm -hmm. let's say, a steam turbine that's generated electricity coming from a nuclear reactor heat, mm -hmm. right? Uh, the, the problem is that a lot of assets that people want to predict failures on are not so valuable that it was worth that much effort to go in and build rules-based systems. Mm -hmm. So this is really one of those areas where a lot of investment is happening in the industry around predicting asset state, predicting asset failure modes, and again, rotating machines, vibration patterns, looking at um, temperatures and viscosity, samples of fluids. That's one of the big known problems. These policy-based systems seems to be chased away from almost any application I I've heard about in uh, security elsewhere. They don't seem to be scaling well and cause a lot of problems. Mm -hmm. So as you are looking at these technical problems, there are also business problems. Yep. Can you speak a little bit to business aspect? Yeah, uh, uh, going back to, the, to some of our customers who want to get smart, connected products, right? Yep. They, they have multiple business issues. And here, there's a subtle business issue that has arisen that is an incredible killer app for our company. And I'm going to call that on-premise software as a service. Mm -hmm. And it, you know, it's it's uh, the technology behind it, I think we all know, right? It's it's your typical cloud deployment, virtualization, right? Containerized applications, the ability to run those apps. But what's the business side of that is if, I would, if I'm a software company and I've been selling my software as a license, let's say, uh, let's go to the nuclear power plant example. And I provide this sort of uh, condition-based maintenance software to utility customers. And uh, they stand up and deploy that software in their environment on systems that they have to go procure, that they have to manage, they have to keep continued care feeding and support. Now, if with the cloud, it's very desirable, obviously, for those customers to, to not get involved in the IT you know, infrastructure management and procurement. So cloud has created this incredible convenience, but some apps still need to run on-premise. And customers still want the cloud benefit of not having to own and run the infrastructure themselves. Mm -hmm. 
the software vendors don't resell hardware. So what happens? There's no cloud for these customers. Well, there is. That's called HPE, that's called GreenLight. So mm -hmm. the interesting business problem we're solving, mm -hmm. which is a killer app for us, is to enable software vendors who typically want to provide their wares as a SaaS model to be able to address customers who don't want to own the IT equipment. Mm -hmm. And it has to run on-premise. Very interesting, kind of inverted clouds in a way. It's the on-prem SaaS killer app. Mm -hmm. That's where GreenLake is going. And there are an incredible number of customers that we have you know, in the financial services industry mm -hmm. where they have these distributed replicated sites. They've, they OEM our hardware and, and provide it. Now they're wanting to shift and get out of owning the hardware. They want us to provide underlying SaaS infrastructure to customers who don't who also don't want to own the infrastructure. We should talk about it a little bit more yeah. after the, the, the session. Yeah. Uh, tell me, are there any standards, open standards, formal standards, informal standards that are relevant for your business? Yes, and, and uh, but one of the problems we face is not there aren't nearly enough. Mm. So in, in an operational setting, so let's say you're in operations, you're in IT, right? The tools you use to do your job, to monitor your estate, your asset estate, are well known, they rely on standards, things like um, simple network management protocol, right? Mm -hmm. which, is, which is what all these management tools can run around and, and, and scan on machines and figure out what's out there, inventory it, get the state. In the operations technology world outside of IT, those types of standards do not exist. Mm -hmm. And it is an incredible challenge. So going back to the asset owners, people in manufacturing, or they run a, a oil and gas pipeline, the control systems and the machinery that is connected via potentially networking, there are no standards for how those devices are managed. And mm -hmm. it is an incredibly difficult problem. So the closest we come is a standard that has been furthered by what we call OT vendors, operations technology vendors. Mm -hmm. Think of Siemens, Schneider, ABB, um, and it's called OPCUA, mm -hmm. which is which is a really just a, a client server binary API mm -hmm. Uh, that's probably 20 years old, but has finally been uh, reached a standardized level for controllers. So if I have control systems and I want to uh, scan the state of those control systems, I can use OPC UA to do that, and most control systems now adhere to that standard. But even at that, a lot of this equipment is 30 years old and is pre-standard. This is a big, big problem. And uh, this is one of the reasons why we've, we've discussed with many vendors things like data set, metadata standards, mm -hmm. because uh, th by the time you get to the streaming level, there are standards like Kafka and MQTT and others that are widely used, but there's a layer above that that's needed for interoperability. And climbing up the levels of the stack, you were talking about AI um, helping with different aspects. Do you feel the need for standardized or at least standard solutions at that level? Yeah, I think so. And I think this gets back to the data set and standardization, mm -hmm. especially with regards to machine learning where it's very difficult to prove your work mm -hmm. or to reproduce a, a prior result. Mm -hmm. the, uh, there's not as much science behind it as people want. Mm -hmm. And so there's a desire to be able to recreate pipelines and have metadata that describes all of the context behind 
a particular experiment or creation of a model mm -hmm. so that you can provide more rigor behind how that model is created. And that needs to be standardized or everybody's tools will have their own approach. Mm -hmm. Interesting, very interesting. So switching the gears, um, I know how to market products. Mm -hmm. how, do you mark, how do you do marketing of your uh, advisory and professional <laughs> services? Not very well. So <laughs> we, um, we're in a company that sells infrastructure to literally every commercial entity mm -hmm. on earth. I mean, honestly, everybody buys servers. And because there, there are so few vendors and we have such a significant market share, we, literally everybody calls us a vendor of theirs. Mm -hmm. uh, from a services landscape where our footprint is not nearly as big, especially on the advisory side. So we do have an advantage in that through the sales force, we can use word of mouth and uh, we can educate our mm -hmm. enterprise account teams you know, on our capabilities. That's our primary way of generating business. But obviously we use events like Discover, we use events like Aspire, TSS, and Atmosphere to help educate both the customers. But beyond that, right, our, our, uh, our marketing reach is not profound. Normally when I talk to researchers, I ask them about publishing, about standards. You are probably publishing brochures that describe your... We do. Uh, yeah. We do. And in fact, in my particular practice, it's called Network Workplace and IoT. Mm -hmm. We are actually, uh, we went through IDC MarketScape mm -hmm. uh, analysis, and they have us rated as leaders in each of those three. Beautiful. Yeah. So, and what a lot of people don't realize is we're, we have more capabilities than Cisco in network services. Wow. Which, uh, and, and more capabilities. In fact, in terms of capabilities, we were number one. That's beyond Accenture, Cap, Gemini, all of the, the consultancies you can think of. So, so it must be, you must be doing something right in marketing. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, well, I think the fact that we don't market mm. actually may help in that particular case. We're a well-known secret to certain customers who reuse our services quite a bit. I usually ask uh, my interviewees about diversity, equity, and inclusion. How do you observe it in your role as chief technologist for IoT? So, you know, in, in, uh, in our area, I think, uh, first of all, our, our business itself, the practice, is geographically very distributed. And so uh, it's, it goes without saying that we have diversity in terms of nationality and culture. Mm -hmm. And uh, our biggest business, for example, is in Japan. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have a significant smart cities project business in India. Um, we, I think that our, our belief as a practice is that we have to have people do more than one thing and represent, we not only represent a worldwide organization, but we also have to represent these diverse cultural requirements. Mm -hmm. And so our worldwide team is actually consisting of people who have dual roles. One of your roles is what you're doing functionally within the worldwide team, but your other role is you're representing perhaps a population of some sort. So you might have known Jenny Pufferi, right? Yeah, she, yeah. She uh, very recently retired, yeah. but a, a very prominent you know, woman technologist in the company and very, very active in driving some of these key processes we've had, whether it's TechCon, whether it's the processes we've had dealing with analysts in, in our uh, practice area. But she had yet another role, which is kind of represent the needs of the French. 
And, uh, and so you see this in our practice mm -hmm. where people have to take on not only wearing a functional hat, but they're wearing a culture reach hat, they're wearing a customer access hat, and the team is too small to not have people wear multiple hats. Yeah. Step up and uh, do what nobody asks you. You recognize the need. Exactly. Speaking of the needs, you do work for customers, obviously, our customers. But there's the broader purpose of what we do. And um, I've heard many times our leadership talking about HP being forced for good. Yeah. Can you give us some examples how we do that? Uh, exactly. So my, t my IoT team, in fact, they, they got involved in some projects a couple of years back that have proved to be smash hit successes. I mean, mm -hmm. we weren't the drivers, we were helpers in this process. But uh, a very large fertilizer company named Yara, mm -hmm. uh, they're out of Scandinavia, had a program to help uh, you know, very impoverished farmers in Latin America with crop yield increases. And where IoT comes in, of course, is that you can take soil samples, humidity, moisture samples. You can, uh, by virtue of understanding the, the planting patterns and the seed patterns, it's possible to take data and to literally double the yields of some of these farmers. And by virtue of, of helping you know, to instrument this and fund this behind the scenes, we actually got banks involved and did not have to put much money into it. Mm -hmm. a, crazy, a crazy fact of IoT is if you can help a farmer double their yield, it's not hard to find a bank who will loan them the money for the sensors, for the data equipment, whatever is required to do that. And it turns out they're good for the money. The bank is, has a very high interest loan. Uh, the farmers are extremely happy. And, uh, and of course, more fertilizer gets sold. It's one of those strange things where everybody wins. All stars align. All stars align. And then we've seen cases also where you know uh, a lot of the digitization and data set work. Mm -hmm. So one of the projects that I think got discussed at Discover just now is what we're doing with Novartis mm -hmm. in a partnership to address the dengue fever issue mm -hmm. in, in uh, many of the more tropical climates in the world. And dengue fever is, is one of those, one of those uh, you know, diseases that does not get the same type of pharmaceutical attention that others do. And so this, this is one of those areas where our you know, ability to help in the machine learning, artificial intelligence, be able to understand analytics, statistical patterns, uh, you know, epidemiology, and the computer side of that has been very valuable. So you are traveling left and right, visiting customers around the world. Um, Pre-pandemic, I'll say. Yeah, well, okay, well, now virtually, but yeah. it's still a lot of uh, effort. And uh, uh, how, how do you stop? How do you wind down? What do you do? I, I happen to know that you were climbing. Yeah. Do, what else do you do? Oh, so, so I, I bicycle. Mm. I, was a, I was a very avid runner. Until I found out I have, uh, I'm a candidate for hip replacement, so I've got to figure that one out. <laughs> IoT. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's right. <laughs> In terms of hips. Exactly, exactly. But uh, yeah, exercise and mm -hmm. and uh, and honestly, I'm a big fan of complex systems. Actually, mm -hmm. uh, I I believe there are emerging ways to to view processes, biological processes, cultural processes in terms of capacity and complex systems. So on the side, I, uh, I do nerdy things like that too. 
So you do nerdy things to recover from technical things. That's right. <laughs> great, great. Uh, thank you very much. You, so, so much interesting things. Thank you.